Welcome to Church of the Apostles. We're so glad that you've chosen to be here to worship with us this morning. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time of worship together. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the creator and sustainer of all life. We thank you for the beauty of your creation and the way it cries out to us, that it shows us, that it points us to who you are and the majesty of your name. We pray this morning that... uh, All that we do and say would be honoring and glorifying to you, that we would make much of your name, that we would exalt over who you are, that we would uh, make much of the beauty of all that you have done. We thank you for all that you've done for us, and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we begin our time this morning, it goes wonderfully with what we just sang, that he is exalted and that he's on his throne. And as I read this morning from Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2 and it says this thus says the Lord heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool what is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest all these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be declares the Lord but this is the one to whom I look he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word may that be What defines us as we come together, that we tremble at the word of the Lord, that we're excited about what he would say to us through his word and through our songs and as we uh, praise his name together. So let's stand together this morning and lift our voices to praise his name. I read a uh, very, what I thought was pretty humorous commentary this week. Uh, It was an article I read and uh, the guy was talking about um, the upcoming elections and our our, our world and the way we get ramped up politically and the rhetoric that goes along with an election year and all those things. And he was, he was writing this article and he was saying, and there's, there's one thing that you will never, ever hear from a politician, especially in an election year. You just never, ever hear it. And he was building this case and going down and he gets towards the end and he says, and the thing that you will never, ever hear is I don't know. You, you never hear that. You never hear that. Uh, you think about uh, when we have the debates and what's going on and they go to debates and they ask him a tough question And a lot of times it's obvious that they don't know, but they go to their script and they start to answer something that's vaguely related to the question that was asked that you're watching. You're like, that's not what they asked. And they just go to it. But but what uh, the article was saying, though, is that because of that, because uh, oftentimes in politics, it's a sign of weakness. You can't ever be just honest that I'm not really sure about that. And as as I read that article, I kind of laughed about that and thought some of the other things you probably will never hear is is uh, maybe I was wrong. Or I made a mistake and maybe we should reconsider the way we're doing things. Or you just don't hear those things. And as I thought about it, it's, it's a sad uh, statement. And, and when you start to think about that and how it works its way into politics and all those things, a lot of times what it ends up with is a political system, uh, politicians like we have now where there's a lot of polarizing things and a lot of no one will ever admit they're wrong. And, and as I thought about that, kind of what's behind that is it's, it's really a, A sense of pride an arrogance that's there that I can never admit that I made a mistake or or maybe we didn't do this quite right. And and as I was thinking about that, I I went to that article this week and was thinking about the kind of problems that causes in any organization and anything, whether it be a church or a nation, government, whatever, when that's the case, when we become so arrogant that we won't ever stop to reconsider or learn from our mistakes and. And, and the reason I bring that up is as, as we move this morning, we're moving from the book of Judges into 1 Samuel. And, and in that, we're moving from the period of Judges to the United Kingdom, where Israel is united under one king. 
And as we're going to look this morning, as we look at the first king in the United Kingdom and that that switch from the judges to the to the United Kingdom, we see this very clearly. We see this prideful arrogance and we see the problems that it causes. And so this morning, as we're looking at that, I want you just to have that in your mind because we're going to go right to that. And if you know uh, your history at all, you know your Bible a little bit, you'll know that we go from Judges and then into 1 Samuel. The story kind of continues. And, and what we get is this, this period of when Israel asks for a king and they go to a kingdom and they're united under one king. And it's really where Israel uh, accomplishes kind of its greatest uh, uh, glory as a nation under, under this united kingdom. But it's a very short-lived time. It's only about 120 years, three kings, 40 years each. And that's what we see in First and, and Second Samuel. And so we're moving into that this week. And if you know um, your history a little bit, you know that the first of those kings is Saul. And that's really what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be in First Samuel chapter 15, and that's where we'll be. Um, if you, you notice, normally we print the uh, text in the bulletin. It's not there that week. That's because we have new pew Bibles in every seat in here. We have ESV Bible, which is the same Bible that I read from. This is actually one of them I'm using. So if you don't have a Bible, those are there for you to follow along. You can, you can do. We're actually going to be on page 153. I can tell you the page because they're all the same. So page 153 is where we'll be in 1 Samuel 15. And let me just say, if you don't have a Bible, you come and you didn't have one, maybe you don't have one, maybe you have an old one somewhere, you're not sure where it is, this is our gift to you if you need one. We would love for you to take it and have it and use it and read it. So if you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please take it. Um, If you do have a Bible, we encourage you to bring it each week because every week we're going to spend time in God's Word looking at a passage of Scripture. That's what we do. We believe the sermon should be... Uh, exegetical that is explaining what God's word says. So that's what we're going to do. So if you need one, though, please take it. That's that's your gift for you to have. So first Samuel 15, we've been moving through Joshua judges actually before that Deuteronomy in the last three weeks. If you've been with us, we've done Deuteronomy and then Joshua and then judges. And then we're on to first Samuel this week. That is not normal. We don't normally cover a whole book of the Bible every single week. Um, but, but we're doing an overview of Scripture. We're moving through the big story, and so we're moving pretty quick now through these big ideas. And so what we've been seeing as is, is we talk about the whole big picture is that man has sinned and rejected God, and that happens right in the beginning in Genesis, and then the whole of Scripture is God unfolding His plan to redeem all of creation. And as we're moving through, we see God making different promises and then keeping those promises. We see Him fulfilled We see right at the beginning, God promises that he's going to save the world through the seed of a man, of a woman, in Eve. And then he he later says that promise again to Abraham. And he tells Abraham, Abraham, there's going to be four parts to that. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you lots of descendants. And I'm going to bless the world through your seed. and, And I'm going to give you a land. And so what we've seen as we're moving through is in Exodus, there's a great number of descendants. There's literally millions that have now descended from Abraham. And then in Joshua, we see the the fulfillment of them taking the land. And now as we're moving into 1 Samuel, we're starting to see the fulfillment of a great nation. Israel is being made over by God into a great nation. And we saw parts of that unfolding before that, that God's telling them how to worship and how to come to him and what this nation should look like and all these things. And now we're getting to 1 Samuel and it's all starting to come into place. So God's fulfilling these promises as we move through week after week. And that's where we are today as we're moving into 1 Samuel to see that. So um, we're going to go at this just like this today because we're moving in big chunks. 
what I'm going to do is just spend a few minutes getting you from Judges to 1 Samuel 15, because we're jumping through uh, quite a few years and a lot of stuff. So we're going to do that real quickly. We'll move through that. And then we're going to look at Saul. And what we're going to see in 1 Samuel 15 is Saul's downfall, what happens. And we're going to talk about why that is, the things that point to Saul's downfall. And then lastly, we'll look at how we uh, avoid that. We avoid what happened to Saul. And I'll just say this as we begin Everything we look at with Saul and as we're looking at 1 Samuel is so relevant to us. It's relevant to us personally. It's relevant to our country today. It's relevant to a lot of the problems we have in the world as a whole. And so don't, don't check out because 1 Samuel and we're talking about kings and these kingdoms. Along, this is all so vitally relevant to where we are. So let's begin uh, just, just with a big idea of getting to uh, 1 Samuel 15. How we get from Judges, the period of Judges we were in last week, to where we are now. And what happens is, and we hit on this if you were here last week, Judges is a cycle that goes round and round. And what happens is the people have rejected God. And this goes back to even Joshua. Before then, they didn't drive out all the people of the land. And they left these, these uh, bad influences and all these things. And then they assimilated them and they came in. And then in Judges, they just had these bad cycles over and over. And what would happen is that people would go after the foreign gods and they would leave God and they would go to idolatry and all these things. And then nations would come in and take them over and they'd cry out to God and he'd raise up the judge and they would repent and then as soon as things were going well, they'd go right back to what they were doing. And it goes round and round. And there's seven cycles in Judges. And so we get to the end of Judges and we come to 1 Samuel. And really, 1 Samuel is in a lot of ways the last judge of Judges. But he's different. He's not the same. In, in the book of Judges, the Judges were military leaders that would, God would raise up and they would lead the people. With Samuel, we see something a little different. He is that. He's, he's this leader that gets raised up for the people, but he's also, also a prophet. We see judge and prophet come together in Samuel. He speaks the word of the Lord. He speaks it obediently. He speaks it clearly, even when it's not popular. He'll say what God tells him to say. You see that very, very beginning chapters of 1 Samuel as he gets the word of the Lord and he has to go tell Eli that Eli is about to be removed and his sons are going to die and all these things. And you see it from the very beginning with Samuel. He speaks clearly what God says. And so what we see in Samuel is this picture of he's bringing the people together and he's speaking God's word. But there's still all those remnants that are there from Joshua and Judges and all those problems and all those things. And we see those come together in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 4, it comes and it says, it tells us that then all the elders of Israel gathered together. And this is 1 Samuel 8, 4 and 5. It says they came together and they came to Samuel and they said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the other nations. And that's an important verse for us to consider and think about when we're looking at the big picture, because there's something that's there's a big problem there with what they say from what we've seen as we're moving through the way God is calling these people out because he's called this specific group of people out that he's going to show the world what true worship looks like, how they're to be different and set apart. That's what we said. Holy is there to be a holy nation and they're to be right in the middle of the known world to show people what it's like. And then God's going to bring the Messiah through this group of people. This is his plan all along. But here we have in first Samuel Chapter 8, they say, now give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. They've rejected what God wants for them because what he said for them is, I don't want you to be like all the other nations. I want you to be different. I want you to show them what it means to be set apart to me, to be holy, to, to have true worship. And they say, no, we think we'd rather have a king and be like everybody else. 
And so God finally says, he says, okay, that's fine. Do that. And he says, Samuel, fine, go. I'm going to tell you who to be. You're going to go find this guy, Saul. He's going to be the king. You let him do it. But you warn the people what's going to happen, that the king's going to come up and he's going to tax them and he's going to take their stuff and he's going to put them under his, his authority and all these things. And they're going to be sorry, but you warn them, but you tell them that's fine. I'll give them what they've asked for. And so what we see is that's how we get a king. That's how the United Kingdom starts. God says, okay, you go and you, you get, get the king that you're, you're so desperately wanting to be like all the other nations. And so God gives them Saul. And Saul is the, the handsome, big, strong guy that looks like he should be a king. And so what God does, and we find out later, is he essentially gives them the king that they wanted. Fine, I'll give you a king that's like all the other nations. And that's what happens with Saul. And so what happens is Saul starts off okay. He does some good things. He starts to unite the people. He wins some battles, but he quickly gets off track. And as we're going to see today, and as we started this morning with, there's an arrogance there and there's a problem. And so we're going to see that in Saul and we're going to see it in chapter 15. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But we needed to kind of get to how we got to this point. So that's, that's our first part, but now we're going to look at Saul. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 26. I'm going to read that with us together, and then we'll walk through that, and we'll see the downfall of Saul and what happens. So it says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, from the people spared the best, the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Though you were little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed. When then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Samuel and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission that the Lord sent me and I have brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep, the ox, and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, as the the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, you have rejected, he has rejected you from being king. Samuel, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, 
I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at that uh, passage together. Dear Lord, we ask, as we always do, that your spirit would be here, that you would open our eyes to see your word, that you would come and apply it to our hearts, that you would show us uh, where we are lacking and where we are not trusting you, and that you would uh, show us today how your word uh, conforms us to your image, that you would work in us, that you would show us clearly what you want us to see in your passage. Pray this morning that all things that are said and done here would be in complete accord with your word and would be honoring to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we look at this, we've already hit the first point of how we got to this point. So now we're moving on to Saul. And so this is what I want to ask is, what is the problem here? Why does Saul fall apart? Why has God rejected Saul as king? And and we're going to look at this and see uh, when we do, we're going to see uh, also then we're going to look at the answer. And what's the answer of the solution? And what I want us to see is, as I said at the beginning, is it's the same uh, things that will cause problems in our own lives. It's the same things that will cause problems for us as a country as a nation, as, as things in the world. And so this is so relevant to where we are. So let's look at it. There's three things I want us to hit on and see here with the problems that lead to Saul's downfall. I mentioned before, if you read the few chapters before this, Saul doesn't start off all bad. He actually has a couple of battles after his first victory. He says, oh, this was all God and look what God's done. And he seems to be starting off okay. So it's not all bad for Saul, but then it starts to go bad pretty quickly. And then he starts to do some things off on his own and not listening to what God's telling him. And so what we get is we get these three problems that are detrimental to him personally, but also to the nation as he's trying to lead. And so the first problem I want you to look in verses 12 and 13, because the first problem is right there. And it says, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, bless be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And what we get is this picture. The first thing we're looking at that we get this picture of Saul setting up monuments to himself. Look what I've done. Look what I've done for God. And so the first thing we see is him pointing out how good he is and what he's doing. And so Samuel shows up and he tells him. I've done all these things and I've come, I've done everything that God's commanded and he's building monuments to himself. And you see this picture and, and, and we'll see in just a second. He tells all this to Samuel and Samuel says, oh, really? Is that, is that true? Is that right? You've done everything that God's commanded. And we come to find out that he hasn't. But what I want us to see the first is that, that Saul has, has bought into the lie that the big story that his life and what he's doing and where he's going is all about himself. And we've talked about that week after week when we unfold the big story, the big picture of all of Scripture. That's the lie that gets us everywhere along the way that we decide to make it about ourselves. Look at what we've done. Look at what I've done for God. That's what Saul's saying. I'm going to make a monument to what I've done here. And I've I've done everything that God's commanded. So I'm going to make much of myself. I'm going to point that out to everybody. And so what we start to get here is is the first problem is Saul's arrogance of look at what I've done and who I am and how I'm how I'm moving and and, and seeing. And so that's why we're spending so much time in this overview series of all of Scripture, of taking the time to unfold how God's working through hundreds and thousands of years. Because when we pull back and we see the big picture, men come and go. 
Nations rise and fall. Things happen. But God is the one always working. And so the picture becomes clearer and clearer the further we pull back and the bigger sections we see. Like last week, we covered about 350 years and, and a half an hour of judges. And what we saw is the rise and fall of men and the things they do. And the thing, but God is still moving and he is still sovereign and he's still at work. And it shows us that it's all about God, that it's not about us. And the problem is when we get so taken with ourselves and what we're doing, we end up like Saul. We end up going, look at what I've done for God. Look at me. Look at how great I am. And I think about the relevance to us, for us personally, but for a nation. I think of all the wonderful things that God has blessed and done through America. But then I hear politicians speak about America is the hope of the world. Or the the best hope that we have is the ideals of the American people. And they talk like, That if things are going to be fixed in the world, it has to come through us in this nation. And God has gloriously done wonder. And that's not to say he hasn't done wonderful things to this nation. He absolutely has. He has. He's done lots of good for the world through this nation. But when we start to believe it comes all through us. And now we're above everybody else. And for God to work, it has to be through this. We're starting to float in the territory that that Saul's in. And that's, in a lot of ways, where we are today. We talk that way a lot of times. That's the way our politicians talk anyway. When I hear that, that we're the the last best hope of the world. A nation of sinful people is the hope of the world. That's, That's a scary place to be in because we've started to buy into the lie that the story is all about us. And it's not about God. And it's important for us to think about personally as well, not just on a national level, but for us individually. It's like when things go well in your job and you get uh, promotion or things are going great or, or whatever it may be. And you start to say, ah, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at where I've come from and all the things. That, and we start to make it about us. We start to buy into look at how great I am and all that I've done. And here it is, as we read this morning in Isaiah 66, right at the beginning, God saying, I sit on my throne and the earth is my footstool and there is nothing that I have not made. And so we start to buy into that and we see that with Saul and we see how detrimental it is when arrogance, when the problem becomes for Saul, if it was modern day, believing your own press clippings. Look what I've done. Look who I am. And so that's the first problem we see this arrogance of it's all about what I've done. But then the second problem, look at verses 14, 15 and 16. And Samuel said, uh, he says to Saul, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said, stop, and I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. If you go back and you read the beginning of the chapter or even you read the next few verses after this, you see that God's instructions were all the livestock, all the sheep, all the stuff, they're to destroy all of it. They're not supposed to take any spoils. Nothing. Right? Don't take anything from this battle. I'm giving this battle to you. You devote all things to destruction and you don't take those. And so here Saul is saying, look at what I've done and I've followed all commandments of God and look at me and I'm doing so great. And Samuel says, oh, really? Why do I hear sheep? Why do I hear the oxen? Why do I hear these things? And what becomes clear is Saul didn't do all that God commanded. He did some of it. He did part of it. 
And then he got to this part where here's this really prized stuff that we could sacrifice. And what happens is he decides, even though God clearly commanded to do this, to get rid of all of it, he decides, I know better. God couldn't quite mean that. So I'll go ahead and I'll keep this part. And what we see is his arrogance leads to saying, I know better than God does. I think I know better than what's going on here. So I'll go ahead and I'll just leave some of that. So the second problem becomes when we become the ultimate judge and we put ourselves above God's word. Our arrogance leads us to go, well, I know better. He couldn't mean that. Sure, he meant to destroy some of it, but I'm sure he didn't want us to destroy the best of it. And you see that that flows directly out of arrogance. You get later uh, when when uh, Samuel's telling Saul in verse 23, he says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Think about what he's saying. When you presume to know better than God, you are now moved into idolatry because you're saying I know better than God. So my intellect has become my supreme God, the thing that guides me more than what God says. And you've moved into idolatry. And that's what he's saying. You've moved into idolatry and he's telling Saul that there's a great, great quote that we put in the bulletin this morning from a Danish philosopher from the 1800s. And his name is Soren Kierkegaard. And maybe you read that this morning and thought about that. But I'm going to read it to you just briefly because this so clearly goes to where we are. And when we talk about the way we put ourselves over God, we do it in the church. We do it as believers. We do it all the time. And Kierkegaard says it so well. He says, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand it, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I did that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship. What will we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. And what Kierkegaard is saying is so often we know so clearly what we're to do because God's word is easily understood. And it's the same with Saul. There was no doubt about what he was supposed to do, but he decided in his arrogance, I know better. And we see that each and every day. Modern scholarship, that's it. I don't know that it really means that. It could possibly mean this. And so we start to chip away and take things that are so clearly that we try to uh, explain them away so we don't have to come too close, as Kierkegaard points out. And it's, the big, it's such a problem. And it's a problem because when we do that, we become the ultimate decider. We put ourselves over God. I'll decide what I'm going to follow and what I'm not. And that's what Saul did. And we see the exact same thing here. And when you end up with that, you end up with a God that looks just like yourself. If your will can't be crossed and you're standing over and above Scripture, then all the decisions you will make will be what you look like. Well, I think it should be this, so therefore I'll do that. And so what you end up is with idolatry, like he says in verse 23. You're your own idol. You're the ultimate say in your own life. We, we put our common sense over the clear directives of God's word. 
We see that in our country right now. We see it in huge issues that are coming up each and every day. We decide, well, the Bible can't really mean that, so let's try to explain our way around it, and then we'll make it something else. That's why I say we're in very close to the same territory Saul's in. Our arrogance, our prideful I know better is coming to the surface each and every day, and it's a scary place to be in. We, take, we want to take great care in God's words. One of the reasons that you have this particular translation in the Bible in the pews, the ESV translation, is it's a very, very literal translation. Word for word. Each word is translated exactly what the word says. And the reason we do that is because we believe that the words are inspired by God and we should take great care of each word. Not just the general idea, but the actual words have meaning. And so we want to be so careful and clear that we're taking what God's word says. So what we have is first problem is the arrogance. And that arrogance leads to us saying, I know better. And we begin to stand over and above God's word. And then there's a third problem that grows out of that. And you see it in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned and I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I have feared the people and obeyed their voice. See, what happens is when we make the story about us and it becomes all about look at what I'm doing and who I am, then we start to care a lot about what people think about us because the story is all about us. So I want everybody to like me because it's all about me. And that's what Saul falls into. And then the problem becomes you start to be shaped in the way you move and the way you go by what people say and their opinions over what God's word says. And when we get into that area, we're in trouble. Big trouble. And we see that in our text here. We see that coming forward. I think of uh, Romans when I read this, when it says professing. To be wise, they became fools and worshiped the creation rather than the creator. Paul says that in chapter one. And what he's saying is when we make what people think and what we think and our earthly stuff over and above God, we're worshiping the creation rather than the creator and all nothing good's going to happen from that. All right. When I think about this idea of caring more what people think than what God thinks, I think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said over and over clearly, if you stand on my word and what it says, you will be persecuted. You won't always be well liked. And a lot of times you won't be well liked. You'll be persecuted. Or he says a little bit later in the same sermon, just a few verses later in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, when we become so enamored with what people think over what God thinks, you're standing at odds with the way God works oftentimes and what Jesus calls us to. And when we start to do that, it goes back to what we talked about last week. When we let those voices come in from the outside, that's what we're talking about in Judges. When we begin to be discipled by the world versus what God says, then what happens is we fall into that consumer mentality. The customer's always right. It doesn't really matter what God says. It matters what the masses say. It matters what we, we want and what my opinion is and all those things. And so that becomes such a hard thing. And I'll tell you that one of the hardest Parts of the, that I've found in the last year plus of being a pastor in a church is everyone has opinions. <laughs> and that's okay. We all have opinions. 
But what happens is a lot of times is people come and they'll give their opinion, and sometimes the opinion's very good. And you go, thank you for sharing that. That's really great. That's very helpful, and that helps us to think about it. And sometimes people come, and the opinion's kind of neutral. It's like, yeah, we could do it that way, or we could do it that way, and they're both biblically okay, and we have to make a decision. But then there's times when people come, and they have an opinion that's not biblical. And they say, I don't like the way you say this, or I don't like the way you do this. And they'll say that, and they'll say, and you go, okay, well, this is why we do that. And I've had that conversation a couple times. Let me show you why we do what we do. Here's what it says in Scripture. And it breaks my heart, but I've had a couple times when people go, well, that's not the way we did it in my old church, so I want you to change it. I don't care that that's what it says. I think we should probably change it anyway. And that is so hard because you don't ever want to see someone walk away, seeing people leave because you won't change it to be what they want. And you go, but this is what it says. And that's really hard because it breaks your heart because you don't want to see them leave for that. But you can't change it. I can't change what this says. And so I read over and over 1 Corinthians 4 because 1 Corinthians 4 says that I will not be judged by man, but I will be judged by God. Or I read Hebrews 13 that says, you will be called into account because you are giving watch over their very souls. And so I say that and I bring that up just simply to say this. I love you too much not to hold to what this says. I don't have a choice. And I'm sorry if that conflicts with us sometimes. But we have to be a people that holds to God's word or we will be just like Saul. And God will say, I'm done. You're of no use now to me because you care more what people think than what God's word says. And we are in a scary, scary place if we start to go there. And so I say this often, and I really mean this. If you ever hear me say something that you don't think lines up with what God's word says, I want to know it. I want us to sit down and look at God's word together and make sure that that's where we're going, that we're not getting off. And so we as a body of believers need to hold each other accountable. That's part of what this is as a church body is to be able to do that. I don't think you're quite right on that. Let's look at it together. And we will. We will always do that. And we always want to do that because that is so important that we do that. We don't ever want to be shaped by man's opinion over God's word, ever. Because when we do, you get to verse what he says in verse 26 to Saul. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. Friends, we are in desperately close to that happening in this country. To being rejected because we're not holding to God's word over what man's opinions are. And that's a scary place to be in. And so our job as a church is to be what Jesus says, salt and light and stand forth and speak God's word clearly and be on your knees praying that we would turn back to him and we would value what he says over what the world says. Because if we're not, we're useless. We're in trouble. There's not much that God can do when we're so taken with what man says over what God says. Now, The question becomes, what's the solution of that? Or maybe you're saying, I've done that. And to that, I would say, when I say I've done that, you've done, you've held to man's opinion over what God's word says. And if you're saying that today, I would say, welcome to the club, because we all have. 
at one time or another or many times in our lives, we've decided that I'm not going to speak up for that and I'll go with what the crowd says versus what God's word says. But thankfully, we serve a gracious God who wants to use us and he wants us to turn back to him. He wants us to start today. So if that's where you've been, that's okay because he still wants to use you. It doesn't mean he's through with you. So what's the solution, though? He's still at work and he still wants to use us. So what's the solution? Look at verse 17. The way Samuel starts when he addresses Saul and all this, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The the Lord anointed you king over Israel. The answer for our arrogance, the answer for holding our word over other people's opinion, the answer for caring more what people think versus what God thinks, it all goes back to the beginning, like with Saul and like for us. You were sin, you were dead in your trespasses of sin, and I pulled you out of it. Right? Saul, you were little in your own eyes, and I came and I chose you and I made you king and I did it for you. And that's the answer that we start to see, that it's all that God has done for us, not what we do for him. Right? That arrogance starts to come up when we say, look at what I've done for God. But the answer is, everything good that we've ever done is through God working in us, and it's all him, and he gets all the glory. That cuts it off at the end, and that's the heart of the gospel. Jesus came and lived the life that I couldn't live to die the death that I deserve so he could give it to me as a free gift. It's all his doing. And it goes back to the very heart of the gospel, and that's the answer. It's the answer for us individually. It's the answer for us as a church. It's the answer for us as a nation. That it's only what God's done for us that we're even here. And we have to get that picture, or we'll just go round and round like they did in Judges. And we'll fall back into our pride and all those things. We're going to sing in just a minute. Mark's going to come and lead us. And and what's become one of my favorite songs And it says, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And then the chorus says, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. And that's the answer. We go back and we see that I would have never chosen, I would have never done anything good, except that he came down and he pulled me out and allowed me to see him. And when we get that, it leads us to the last part of of that song and what he says here in verse 22. That obeying is better than sacrifice. Listening is better than the fat of rams. That obeying what God tells us and being all about him and being so taken with who he is is so much greater than anything we can do for God. It's all about what he does for us. And so you get to the end and we're going to sing in just a second. Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. That is the answer to our pride and our arrogance and how he uses us. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you don't leave us to just ourselves that you come to us and that you love us enough to pull us out of our own arrogant, sinful pride and that you choose to use us, that you allow us in on your plan and the way you're working because you're gracious and you're loving and you allow us to be in on it. And we can't even understand why most of the time. Why would you do that? But we thank you. We thank you that you give us the opportunity to obey and trust you each step of the way. 
We pray that we would see the eternal significance of doing so and that would far outweigh all the earthly reasons that we turn and we become prideful and arrogant. We pray that we would be all about you, that our boasts would be completely in you and nothing else. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.